0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 as we get started this morning. Matthew chapter 4, continuing in our Life of Christ series, examining episode number 7 in the Galilean ministry. Episode number 7 is the first preaching tour of Galilee. We're observing a number of uh, characteristics of this first preaching tour that uh, will become characteristic of all of his preaching tours, of his ministry from this point forward, including the priority for prayer, which we uh, spent last week dealing with. I' get the slideshow up and running here. Not parapetology, that's Sunday morning. There it is, first Galilean preaching tour. We have already read through the accounts of Matthew 4:23 through25, Mark 1, 35 through 39, and Luke 4:42 through44. We won't reread all three of those. They are the synoptic accounts, mainly uh, in almost word for-word agreement, but there are slight differences, as you would expect, coming from three different authors from three different perspectives. Uh, we will begin though with the Matthew account. And we're going to key in on the kingdom aspect that we find here. Before we begin with any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, to guide us in the truth. Shall we pray? Father, we do have much to be thankful for. You work in our lives that which is pleasing in your sight, that uh, you who began a good work in, it are faith in us are faithful to complete it. And we thank you for that. We thank you that salvation was the beginning of the good works that you have in store for us. And day by day, moment by moment, you continue to manifest your faithfulness in so many different ways. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have an opportunity to assemble together and to receive instruction that as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we are spiritually alive, able to apprehend spiritual truth. Uh, in fellowship, Father, we have the active power of the Holy Spirit uh, teaching us all things. And we thank you for that as well. So, Father, in this session, we ask for your uh, blessing upon our time. And also, Father, for your protection that you would hedge us about, protect us from those that would come in here and uh, looking for money or looking for trouble. And, Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness again. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, I failed to write down our uh, slide numbers, so I'll just have to take guesswork on this as we go through our slides. We uh, There's really five things that we're going to glean out of this episode, five things that in the Mark in the Matthew account here is uh, verses 23 through 25, so it's only three verses long. In the Mark account, you got verses 35 through 39, so there's five verses there. And then uh, the Luke account, like just like Matthew, is a three verse account. So it's a fairly short episode to study, and and uh, the material we want to glean out of here hopefully is going to be beneficial for us not only for episode seven of the Galilean ministry, but like I say, in additional episodes down the road. Uh, but juggling a number of responsibilities, including his family responsibilities. He has a widowed mother he has to take care of. And he's got a bunch of unbelieving brothers to deal with, as well as these younger sisters. He's juggling family responsibilities, temporal family responsibilities. And I, I can't tell you the number of uh, biographies that I've read, whether it's Spurgeon or... or um, Whitfield or uh, Carey, the great missionary work that he did in India, for example. But all of these men, and in their later years, they tended to have a similar regret was that they had neglected their families, and I find that to be uh, significant to try to learn from in younger years, so that I don't end up with the same regret they all had in. Later years. He has the family responsibilities. He also has a training ministry going on. He's got these 12 disciples. He may not be at the full number of 12 yet. Uh, at this point, we know about six. Uh, we know he hasn't called Matthew yet, because we're going to see the call of Matthew coming up. That has its own uh, that's episode 10 in the Galilean ministry. So he's not yet at the full 12, but he's gathering these men. And these men are coming not just to learn Bible doctrine, which all the disciples were there to do, uh, but they were coming to be trained. They were coming for their own ministry training. And after the resurrection, these 12 are going to become apostles. They're going to go from disciples to apostles. And uh, this training ministry is significant, and it really adds a dimension to any teaching ministry. It adds a dimension to a local church ministry, for example. Austin Bible Church is going to be blessed abundantly as men come and begin training, whether for the pastor-teacher gift or the evangelism gift or whatever it may be. The training of disciples is a significant ministry for a local church, and it's one that I wish more local churches would get involved with, I think. You know, it's been the trend that you just kind of ship them off somewhere and they go off to seminary somewhere and they go off to these ivory towers, these institutions of, of learning, and they come back. And then the sad part is is that unless they've kept in close touch with a pastor, unless they've kept in close touch with a local church ministry, they've lost sight of what the sheep are all about. And the purpose for training in the ministry is to keep them with the sheep, to keep uh, to keep feet grounded, as it were. We'll have more to say about that. Uh, in these classes coming up, the other responsibility, of course, the public teaching ministry. That's one that tends to garner uh, much many accolades. It tends to garner a lot of attention, uh, where thousands and thousands start to come to him, and so forth. And they go, "Wow, we've never seen teaching like this before. Uh, it's teaching with authority. It's not like the scribes or the Pharisees or some of this other stuff." And and the teaching stuff can gather uh, attention. See. And, I uh, remember Ralph always saying the teaching part's the easy part. <laughs> it's the shepherding part where you start to lose your people. You know, because when, you're, when you start shepherding and you start correcting, you start rebuking, you start working personally with individuals, well then, you know, whoa, back off. Now you're meddling, and now the, the, the pastor gets very unpopular at that point. But if you have a shepherd teacher who both shepherds and teaches, then obviously that's where a flock can truly grow. Finally, this personal prayer ministry, as it's focused in the, uh, the Mark account in particular, Mark 135, I like the way that it's stated there, that he, uh, that he uh, dedicated himself to prayer. And that's what we highlighted under main point two. Prayer to his father was the most crucial element to starting his day. We went through a bunch of subpoints last week. And I won't repeat all that because that took the whole hour last week. And trying to repeat all that would take a lot of time here this morning. But notice how he started his day with this. It was a personal prayer habit. And uh, he needed time away from the crowds, time away from the disciples. And I'm just going to, because I didn't jot down the slide number on these. Just go through these. All right. Point three. and This is where we can pick it up this morning. Slide number five. Had I known that, we could have just jumped to it. All right. The Capernaum crowds tried to keep Jesus local, but he had an itinerant ministry to pursue. And I realize now that having you turn to Mark, Matthew 4 was a mistake. Let's go over to Luke 4. Let's go over to Luke 4. And examine uh, the passage there. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for Him. Now, why? Because they wanted more miracles done. They had healed, been healed the night before. They were searching for Him and came to Him and tried to keep Him from going away from them. <laughs> you know? Let's keep Him local, say, Because uh, even though He healed everybody last night, well, tomorrow... We might come down with another sickness. Tomorrow we might uh, be afflicted with more demons. See, tomorrow we want him to stick around so that he can always be there to, you know, to hold our hand and wipe our nose and take care of us, kind of thing. It's going to come up again after he feeds the five thousand. See, uh, they miss the whole point of the miracle. They're not listening to the message about the bread of heaven. They just want their bellies filled day after day after day after day after day. After day. It becomes the priority. Keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. We're going to do a lot of work today on kingdom teaching. But he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. In other words, he was not sent, God the Father did not send Jesus Christ to have a great Capernaum ministry. All right. Capernaum was not, although they'd be his base of operations, they'd be the center from where he would travel from. He would launch out on these missionary journeys and return back to Capernaum. That would become his base of operations because that's where his mother was. That's where his brothers and his sisters were. That was home. And we saw that word where it was used, where Jesus came home to Capernaum. Nevertheless, he couldn't limit his teaching there. He couldn't limit his message there. He had to preach to all the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which meant he had to travel throughout Galilee, uh, Judea, the Parian region, where there were a significant Jewish population, and so forth. He couldn't be limited to this one place. all right. Now we're going to have some comment on that at some point. Uh, in modern times, obviously in the church age now where we're living, uh, it is the primary function of a shepherd to do just that, to stay local because he has a flock. He is commanded to shepherd the flock of God among you and that designates a relatively fixed location that the shepherd stays fairly local with the flock. An evangelist, on the other hand, uh, although he works with a local assembly because he himself very dangerous when a believer decides he doesn 't need to be a part of a church or he doesn 't need to be under the authority of a pastor, an evangelist will be in a church under the authority of a pastor because he himself needs to be shepherded, but when he ministers, he may step out far and and wide he may range considerable distances see so far as that so far as that goes and Just because uh, a pastor, a man has the gift of pastor-teacher and he is primarily attached to a local church, that does not mean that his hands are tied and that he's prohibited from ever traveling or ever ministering elsewhere, ever getting out and about and around and so forth. As Paul told Timothy in in, uh, 2 Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist, that there will be traveling seasons. There will be occasions in which uh, you'll take a mission trip or you'll go speak in another church or different things like that happens. And this congregation is well aware of that and very much. much supportive of those type of travels but these guys wanted to keep them local See, they get very possessive and very controlling. And sometimes that happens. A local church will get very possessive. They don't want their pastor ever going anywhere. See, don't you dare go speak in another church. See, because there's the fear that, well, you know, those people will uh, steal him away. You know, those people will make him a, a pay raise offer or something like that. See, that if he's we want to keep him here, we don't want other people to, to see you know to be exposed to this teaching that's and that's just ridiculous as far as that goes now, this was their approach over in mark mark uh, highlights not necessarily the crowds that were very possessive but uh, he really impacts the uh, the disciples here um Because it was Simon and his companions now, in verse 36, that were searching for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So that also communicates the crowds, the the number of people there in Capernaum that wanted him there. But notice what he says. He says to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. See, and it's not just to be trapped in Capernaum, but Jesus Christ was designed to go around and minister to all the region of Israel. They went into their synagogues and throughout all Galilee preaching, casting out demons. We'll have some comment upon that as well. But returning now to Matthew 4, where I asked you to turn to the beginning, let's deal with this kingdom issue under main point 4. The preaching ministry was to announce the gospel of the kingdom. The preaching ministry was to announce the gospel of the kingdom. If it's a phrase you've not heard before, don't worry about it. We're going to explain it this morning. It's uh, it's not really a different gospel. Because if anyone preaches a different gospel, he should be accursed. <laughs> Alright? You say, well, is that different than the gospel I preach? See? I came to training day on Saturday with CEF and they trained me how to... Preach the gospel, how to witness, how to lead a child to Christ. Don't we all have the same gospel? What is this gospel of the kingdom? Yes, it is the same gospel. But from the perspective of the people receiving it, there's a a different uh, attack. There's a different... Uh, mindset and you have to be mindful of that and I think CEF did a great job on Saturday because we're given the same gospel we give anybody else but the mindset of a child might be a little different or tends to be different than the mindset of an adult so when you're giving the gospel to a child there are techniques and there are approaches that you can use that have been demonstrated over the years as being effective as, as, as methods that work it's the same gospel if you're going to lead a child to Christ, it's going to be they're going to place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That, that child is going to know that they're a sinner, that they need to be saved, that, that the work of Christ on the cross made payment for their, on their behalf, and they can place their confidence in that. And that is the same gospel message you give to an adult. You give to a Greek. You give to a Jew. See, it's the same gospel message we gave in 2005. It's the same gospel message they gave in 33 A.D. It's The same gospel message they gave in 2000 B.C. All right. But now, the context changes even when the gospel doesn't. Because it's the mindset and perspective of the one hearing the gospel then that we want to really recognize to understand what's going on. That way we don't get confused by some of the vocabulary, some of the terminology. Things like gospel of the kingdom. See, And a lot of times... The, um, in covenant theology and other approaches will be very critical of dispensational churches. Be very critical of dispensational uh, pastors, for example. And they will accuse a dispensationalist of, of promoting different ways of salvation. And that's, that's not true. We look back, whereas in the Old Testament they look forward. And if a, if a dispensational pastor is teaching correctly, that's how he's going to explain it. All right, that we look back, we can give the gospel and we can say we can put the name Jesus Christ to it, because looking back, we know that's the name, right? That it was Jesus Christ, born of a virgin and died on the cross for our sins. Now, before the cross, they couldn't put that name Jesus Christ to it. They could put the name Emmanuel to it. At least as of the time, as from 700 A.D. on, after Isaiah gave that prophecy, now they can attach a name of Emmanuel. But prior to that, they were just looking forward to the coming of the Christ. They were coming, looking forward to a coming Redeemer, that someday the seed of the woman would come as a kinsman Redeemer. They didn't know the name, see. But they were still looking forward to being saved by grace through faith. That is, they were placing their trust in Jesus Christ. They didn't have the name yet, but they knew that God with us would take our place and redeem us from our sins. Now, this gospel of the kingdom, reading from Matthew 4, uh, Jesus going throughout all Galilee, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now this becomes a, it's really a summary statement. And that's typical in Hebrew way of thinking. And uh, it's typical in the Gospel of Matthew, written primarily from a Jewish standpoint. Written with an emphasis on Christ the King. Alright, now notice. Going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Teaching is the first verb that's mentioned here. That preaching is next. The, the word for proclaiming there is the word for preaching. See, some people get confused between teaching and preaching and think that, well, you know, we like this church because it's got good teaching, but the pastor doesn't preach as if there's a difference. All right? Teaching is preaching. Preaching is teaching. And it should be happening in uh, in the ministry. But notice what he's proclaiming. The gospel of the kingdom. And we have to ask ourselves, is that the same? Is that our gospel? And, and in some respects, it's a very legitimate question because the word gospel itself is not a translation. It's just simply a, a transliteration. It's, it's the good news. And he's proclaiming good news. All right. Now, if I proclaim good news about salvation and eternal life, what do we call that? We call that the gospel. We call that evangelizing. OK. But if I proclaim good news about a baby born, right, we say uh, Terry's sister had a baby and we announce the good news. Okay? I could still use euangelizomai. I could still use, it would be technically speaking, it would be gospel. But it wouldn't be a salvation message to receive eternal life forever. Right? It would not be a redemption message. But we could still use the word gospel. Because all gospel really means is good news. All right. So it is legitimate, every, and when we encounter the word gospel, when we encounter these concepts, to consider the the context for it. Is it a redemption? Uh, believe in Jesus Christ and go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and become converted with eternal life. That's that's the real issue. All right. If so, then we want to recognize what it is. If not, then we want to recognize what that is. See. So that these these passages are, are rightly divided and are placed accordingly. Now, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, I want you to recognize when the mindset of a first century Jewish person, as opposed to a 21st century American, okay? Because when you're given the gospel, obviously you're dealing with sinners, you're dealing with somebody, and it may be that the thing they think of is uh, not going to hell. See, Gary said it on a Saturday, he got saved because he didn't want to go to hell. You know, he was afraid of dying and going to hell. He was afraid of eternal death and condemnation. and He realized that he was a sinner and he was helpless and hopeless and everything else, drug addiction, everything else going on. And Gary said he didn't want to go to hell. He wanted to learn what this salvation was all about. See, okay? And that can be, I mean, that's kind of the mindset. That's what we deal with when we're giving the gospel. But now, first century Jewish people, their anticipation, although, yes, there's, the fear of going to hell and death and dying and all that. But there is also a kingdom approach that they have to look forward to. Because ever since Abraham, this race of people has been promised blessings, land, seed, and blessings. And ever since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is a nation that has been promised national blessings. And ever since David, this is a nation that has been promised Davidic blessings in terms of the Davidic throne. And so there is a mindset That applies in the Gospels to Jewish people. A mindset that relates to the kingdom, alright, that doesn't relate to you and I today. You and I have no bearing or no hope. We're not looking forward to the, the Davidic throne. We're not looking forward to the Jewish exaltation. Because that's not our realm. We are Gentile believers, and even if we're Jews, our realm is not Israel, our realm is the church. See? I may find out when I get to glory that, that my family is genetically or racially Jewish. See, who, who cares? I don't know. I don't know that today. I just know that a lot of the European Bollanders that came over were Jewish, the French more than the German, and so maybe that's the difference there. I don't know. See, but see, it doesn't really matter because in the church there's no Jew nor Gentile. We're all one body in Christ. So regardless of uh, what genetics I might have. okay. We're no longer really caught up in the kingdom the same way that, that um, uh, the Jewish people were looking forward to the coming kingdom in the first century. That's what I'm trying to get across this morning. When we think kingdom, we tend to think kingdom of heaven, don't we? Because we have so much New Testament teaching on the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus gave a lot of parables on the kingdom of heaven. And our citizenship is in heaven. And we're heavenly minded. But the Jews in the first century weren't looking, weren't thinking kingdom of heaven. They were thinking kingdom. They're thinking kingdom on earth. They're thinking David. They're thinking Davidic throne in Jerusalem and conquer these Gentile dogs. All right, because we're tired of being stepped on by the Romans. And before that, it was the Greeks. And before that, it was the Persians. And before that, it was the Romans. And it was the Babylonians. And before that, it was the Assyrians. And before that, it was the Egyptians. And then mixed into a lot of that, there was the uh, countless times there were Philistines. That kept stomping on them. And by now, these Jewish people are tired of being stepped on, and they want to be the ones doing the stomping, right? They want to be on top. They want to step on the Gentiles, all right? And that's where much of the emphasis then came, where you'd have Jewish people not really concerned about going to heaven when they die. They're really geared towards, let's throw off these Gentile chains, and let's start ruling this place, right? Because they're living in the here and now. Not that different from 21st century uh, individuals living here and now. Living in the world, having fun. The only difference is these guys could be living in the world, having fun, and hoping in world dominion because that was promised to them. A a global empire. Now this gospel of the kingdom. In Luke 4.43 it's called the kingdom of God. Slightly different. We have not yet been introduced to the term kingdom of heaven. And most people view kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven as being interchangeable terms, all right? But those who hold a verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture realize that when God wanted to refer to the kingdom of God, he would do so, and when he wanted to refer to the kingdom of heaven, he would do so. And although God is in heaven, there is reason to discuss the distinctions between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. In any event, Luke 4.43, the kingdom of God. And then it's called the gospel of God in Mark. The good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. So let's look at some of the supportive passages. If he here in Matthew 4 is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what is he proclaiming? Alright, what is he proclaiming? The good news of the kingdom. The good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what John the Baptist was proclaiming. That here is the king. And it is It is imminent. It is right here, right now, ready to be initiated. Okay? Hold that thought. Over in Luke 4.43. Because remember, these guys don't know anything about the coming church. These guys don't have a clue about the coming church. They don't have any concept for 2,000 years in between the cross and the crown. They don't have any concept for what happens when they reject their king. And their stewardship being placed on hold. From their standpoint, week 69 in Daniel's prophecy is being completed and week 70 is about to begin. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the messianic expectations of this throne of David are right here, right now, and ready to begin. They don't know that this great time gap is going to take place. All right, Luke 4 and verse 43 uh, he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. So it's, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and here it's specifically called the kingdom of God. And in Mark 1, we have reference to the gospel of God, the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so stop and consider now this. We've got we to gotta get a handle on this because this is where a lot of confusion comes in when people try to witness to people and tell them they've got to repent to get saved. All right. And, but if you put it back into the Jewish framework and you put it back into the understanding of this kingdom in hand, I think it really helps. All right? Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's saying two separate things here. With respect to the kingdom being at hand, then there's some real repentance that's necessary. Because the way they're living is not going to be appropriate in the millennium. The way they're living is not the way they're going to live when Jesus Christ is seated on the Davidic throne all right then the second part of that that's maybe on the think of that politically okay but now the second part of that think of this now spiritually in terms of salvation in terms of the fact that there's no unbelievers are going to get in the kingdom to begin with this need now is believe all right believe so I don't know if that helps you separate these issues or think about it uh, but it, it, it really helps to avoid the confusion that all these other people throw in there to say, you've got to repent and believe to get saved. Which means you can't get saved if you're still drinking and smoking and chasing women and all this other stuff. You, all these terrible things you do as an unbeliever. All right? Quit drinking, quit smoking, quit staying out all night and quit going to these clubs. And what you do is you just repent, turn over a new leaf, invite Jesus into your heart, and, right? That's, that's the pathetic gospel message I've heard other people use, okay? That's this moral transformation to get saved kind of process. No. The message of repentance was tied in with this imminent kingdom at hand, okay? And it, it really is identical with the uh, message that the Baptist had given. And I think I included a scripture on that. Mm, no, I didn't. I know we covered it when we... Um, we're dealing with John the Baptist. And, and the ones I like the best are in Luke. So flip over for a moment to Luke 3. Because, as I say, you've got to be thinking in, in, on two tracks now. A political track, but then also, obviously, the salvation track. These unbelievers have to, have to get saved. Politically speaking now, as the, as the kingdom is coming in, and uh, John the Baptist is preaching, and uh, it says in luke three three a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and this was a ritual that they went through for this cleansing procedure, all right, not the eternal cleansing, not salvation, but this confession uh, cleansing procedure. And he says, uh, "You brood of vipers in verse seven, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And uh, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember, there is judgment that kicks off this millennial kingdom before believers can enter in. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, And now notice some of these things. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has uh, food is to do likewise. And these are some of the procedures that are going to be vital for the Jewish believers in, in enduring the, the tribulation right before the, the uh, millennial kingdom begins. Notice now, verse 12, we get to some practical issues. Tax collectors came to him to be baptized. They said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Okay? They've, they've been involved in this graft procedure. They're skimming the top. They're skimming profits. And, and they're lining their own pockets. That's not going to work in the kingdom of heaven. That's not going to work in the millennium. They need a change of thinking. Some uh, soldiers, what about us? What should we do? Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Some of their uh, external activity was going to need some modification as well because that that, uh, behavior likewise isn't going to be tolerated in the millennial kingdom. So just think in terms of the political track with external deeds, but also think in terms of the spiritual track in terms of unbelievers need to believe placing their faith in Christ to be saved. All right. So, in proclaiming the, the gospel in this day and age to Jewish people, the house of Israel, there's those two issues. The fact that, yes, the kingdom is right here. The Davidic throne is about to be reinstated. But then also, obviously, unbelievers, the unregenerate, have to become born again. As he was telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. All right. Can we keep those two things separated Thinking of them, I mean, we want to keep them separated, but we also want to keep them both in view. Because all this kingdom teaching is, is exactly dealing with this aspect of imminency. Alright? This aspect of imminency. Let's give you some more scriptures. I think it will unfold through these subsequent subpoints here. Particularly when we get to Daniel. The coming kingdom is the primary message of eschatology. The coming kingdom is the primary message of eschatology. Daniel 2.44 the coming kingdom is the primary message of eschatology. Eschatology being the study of last things. The study of last things. Not technically speaking the study of prophecy, although it is because it's all given prophetically. But we can study prophecy today. We can look back at a whole lot of prophecy that's already been fulfilled. So for us, I mean looking at the virgin birth for example, a study in prophecy... But it's not a study in eschatology because in the virgin birth not, is not featured in the end times, the last things. Eschatos meaning last and logos the study of. So let's go back to Daniel 2 and try to put this together. Daniel chapter 2. And um, as you might expect... Um, as the Old Testament unfolds, as you think your way through the Old Testament, beginning with Adam and Eve falling into sin, and the moment that Adam and Eve fall into sin, a promise is made that the seed of the woman would come and and would crush the serpent's head, and and, and we have the very first evangelism, the very first gospel message there in, in Genesis. And then as more and more of God's plan unfolds, we get more and more detail about that coming Redeemer. See, we're no, we know that he comes in the line of, of uh, Shem, from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We know that he is a descendant of Abraham. We know that he's of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even uh, later on, we're told that of all of Jacob's sons, it's going to be the tribe of Judah. It says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And so the, the tribe of Judah has, a, has, a, has an emphasis and then, obviously, with David and his throne, then and the promise of the Davidic throne, now all of a sudden we, we we've narrowed down the search for this seed of the woman. We're not looking through the broad uh, the, the the width of humanity. We're looking specifically for a son of David in the tribe of Judah. That's who we're looking for, all right. And and so it gets narrow, gets narrow, gets narrower. Ultimately, other things will come in. For example, born of a virgin really narrows it down, I think. And uh, in, in Bethlehem, that was prophesied in, in the book of Micah, all right? So you start looking for virgins in Bethlehem having babies, and if they're, if they're of the line of David, then I, that's a pretty good clue. You're looking at the Christ right there, all right? And it's really irrefutable in human terms. Now, um, all of this, though, is the focus on redemption, the focus on the seed of the woman to redeem humanity from sin, All right. The problem is, is that along the line of that track, when you, are you mentally following that track with me? Do I need to draw pictures? When you follow that track all the way down from the fall all the way down to these promises of the coming Christ, everything there is dealing with redemption, the, the human substitute for our sins. But then also along with that, though, we've started to blend in these elements of kingdom. Okay? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were set apart as a nation. That... They uh, then had a king. They had the, the king they wanted for themselves, which was Saul, and then the king after God's own heart, which God blessed them with, which was David. And then coming with that Davidic covenant, then, okay, and, and I really do want to spell this out because this is part of length and width and height and depth, by the way. Um, the Abrahamic covenant. Vital in our understanding of of salvation and our understanding of Old Testament theology and how it's fulfilled in Christ. Then um, you come on down and this then being uh, expanded upon additionally, basically considered of land, seed, and blessing. All right. And other covenants that then followed. You have the Palestinian covenant, which detailed the land inheritance. You've got the Davidic covenant, which emphasized the davidic throne the kingdom and the reign of the davidic throne but then ultimately you've got the blessing which is amplified in the new covenant of jeremiah 3131 31. all right now in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed the real issue here and i should change to red is blessing <laughs> all right new covenant Writing laws upon your heart, sin, uh, not remembering your sin. See, all the blessings associated with the new covenant, including eternal salvation. Now, um, unfortunately, along the way here, rather than having a redemption uh, emphasis, they started to develop this political emphasis. They started emphasizing this kingdom, this Davidic throne. We want the son of David. And how many of these beggars and blind men and lepers and so forth start shouting out, son of David, son of David. Okay? And the emphasis being on the king, the political kingdom. Okay? And when we get this far, I'm, gonna, I'm pretty well convinced and we're going to demonstrate as part of the motivation in Judas. In Judas Iscariot to try to, let's get this kingdom going. See, politically motivated. We know Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a political uh, terrorist organization, <laughs> all right, geared towards bringing about their political objectives through terrorist methodology. Now, this then became so emphasized that the the need for redemption, the kinsman redeemer, the the uh, the sacrificial lamb, well, that got minimized. Marginalized, as it were. I mean, think about it. if you want to if you're going to synagogue and you're hearing the rabbi teach Bible class, what would you rather hear the 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 sacrificial lamb, the isaiah fifty three passage where he's led to the slaughter, where he dies where he's crushed, Or how about the conquering lion? Which one preaches better? All right. Which one gathers more popular support? See. And realizing, of course, that it's human nature to be ear-ticklers, to want to gather teachers according to your own desires. All right? And so it's no accident, I don't believe, that in the centuries which followed, in the Centuries in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Leading up to the time that we're dealing with here in the Gospels now. Particularly with this Daniel prophecy we're about to look at. That the emphasis became one on conquering. The emphasis became one on the coming Christ. All of their messianic expectations were dominated by victory and glory. Dominated. And... The uh, the past the rabbis that were willing to look at Psalm 22, that were willing to expound upon Isaiah 53, for example, were not uh, not as well represented. were much more uh, limited in their impact. And in the first and second centuries after Christ was crucified, those rabbis that had before Christ been writing about uh, the suffering Lamb of Isaiah 53, they were totally marginalized. Because the early rabbis in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century after Christ realized that that passage looked too much like Jesus of Nazareth. And so they went back and totally denigrated their own rabbis who had prior to that been very well esteemed. uh, But went and and totally denigrated those rabbis that had anything to say about a suffering Messiah. See, they're not looking for a suffering Messiah. They're looking for a reigning Messiah, the the conqueror, the, the king. All right, Daniel chapter two. Can't teach this whole chapter this morning, but it is available on tape. It's available on the website, by the way. Uh, all of we taught Daniel chapter by chapter in Horseshoe Bay, and so uh, that that uh, is on our website, the entire Daniel series as well as a CD that's out here in the hallway. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it terrifies him. And uh, he's going to kill these guys if they can't tell him what the dream was and can't interpret the dream. And uh, Daniel is able to interpret the dream. Now, um, when Daniel was first brought in, verse 26... The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? This was so serious, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't even telling the dream. He was making these guys tell him what the dream was and then tell him what it means. And Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. All of those sorcerers and demon-possessed guys, they didn't have a clue what the dream was all about. See, the demons aren't omniscient. They can't read minds. They don't know what he dreamed the dream didn't come from a demon the dream came from god however there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king made known to king nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days so here is the primary emphasis on eschatology and it's oriented towards kingdom this was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts were turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. And he lays it out there, verse 31. You were looking and you saw a statue. And it was a great big statue. And he goes on to describe it. The head of gold, the chest uh, of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron. And uh, now Nebuchadnezzar goes, wow, that's exactly what I dreamed. Now what does it mean? (laughs) but he knows that now Daniel is going to tell him the truth, that Daniel has insight that none of these other phonies had because Daniel was able to tell him exactly what he dreamed. Now what happens here is um, the head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. Then verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Okay, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and wind and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, this is Jewish eschatology. This is what they're looking forward to. All right. Then Daniel, verse 36, says, This was a dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. And he lays it out there. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and he has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay. Well, you can get more blunt than this. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So we're going to see, we're seeing here now, a succession of kingdoms. And it is the Babylonian Empire, the Median Persian Empire, and the, uh, the Greek Empire that's in view here. And then comes a fourth. This is Rome in verse 40. As strong as iron, Inasmuch as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these pieces. Okay. So we go from Babylon to Persia, to Greece, to Rome. This is the message in chapter 2. It's also the message in chapter 7. It's detailed in even uh, more uh, greater fashion in chapter 8. And then we have more detail in chapter 11. All of that's available on tape. It's available on the website or the, the CD out there in the hallway. Now, this now is our eschatology. Because while the time we get to Jesus Christ and he's traveling around in Galilee, who's dominating Israel? Well, it's Rome. It's that fourth empire. They, and they've seen Daniel's prophecies fulfilled. For 500 years they've seen Daniel's prophecies fulfilled. They saw Babylon fall. They saw Persia fall. They saw Greece fall. And now they see Rome. And they're under the thumb of Rome. But they, they've read the end of the book. They know what's going to happen. They know this stone made without hands is going to come crashing down out of heaven. It's going to smash Rome. And, it, and they're going to be exalted. Exalted. That's what they're looking forward to, okay, with a political, earthly mindset. Notice, nowhere in this, the scope of any of this, are we dealing with redemption. Nowhere in the scope of any of this are we talking about sins and getting saved and going to heaven when you die. The, the whole plan of redemption is not a part of what this prophecy is dealing with this is an earthly uh focus dealing with these empires the rise and fall and the the exaltation of the davidic throne okay and that's where their mindset was fixated now um the fourth kingdom in verse 40 Verse 41. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom and will have in it the touch the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery. So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And by the way, as the uh, course of gentile history con- is concerned this is where we are today we are in the toe stage we are in the feet stage of partly iron partly clay we have the remnants of rome that continue into modern times but it's mixed with the clay elements it's mixed with the germanic gentile elements and this is the the aspect of rome today modern europe and the western world described here by iron and clay so sometimes we can be tough and conquer anything we feel like but other times we're so divided against ourselves we're uh, pretty brittle and pretty weak Then verse 43. um, In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron is not combined with pottery. You just can't fuse iron with pottery. It just doesn't fuse, doesn't work. See? And this is where we are today. That's why today, Europe can't figure out why are they having such trouble reuniting? Why can't they create a United States of Europe? Why can't they agree on a constitution? Why can't they reform the Roman Empire? They've been dreaming about it ever since Rome fell. See, well, it's going to take one man to do it, and he's going to do it after the church is gone. Then verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. See, Babylon gave way to Persia. Persia gave way to Greece. Greece gave way to Rome. Rome is going to give way to this kingdom here, this prophetic eschatology kingdom. And it's never given away to anybody because this is the eternal kingdom. It will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. This is what they're looking for. This is the great hope of the Jewish people. And it's political. It's earthly-minded. It is not at all dealing with sins and salvation or any of that. It's totally wrapped up in the things of this earth. This is what they're looking forward to. All right, so as we bring it back now into the New Testament, and I'll take time for questions here at the end because I know this is uh, this is an awful lot of stuff to give you in very short order. But now let's get back to Matthew because Jesus is giving some kingdom messages. Point C: The word of the kingdom is the gospel of salvation with a kingdom of heaven focus. The word of the kingdom is the gospel of salvation. With a kingdom of heaven focus. Matthew 13, 11 and 19. See, Jesus was very right in giving a gospel of the kingdom. In proclaiming both a salvation redemption angle. As well as the reality of this imminent kingdom. Matthew 13. And he gives parables. Some of you are still writing. Point C. The word of the kingdom is the gospel of salvation. you still got to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. But it has a kingdom of heaven focus. Because this kingdom is imminent. This stone made without hands, potentially now, can crush Rome and establish the, the, the worldwide empire or it becomes a stumbling block. This stone becomes a rock of offense, and Israel, instead of of exalting it and having it fill the earth, they're going to stumble over it and be broken. All right? Because they're going to reject their king. They're going to crucify their king. And their dispensational plan is going to be put on hold while the church is brought in, see? All right. The word of the kingdom is the gospel of salvation. But see, Jesus takes it back and puts the need for faith back into it. Okay? Now, here's the parable. The parable of the sower, one of the most well-known parables that we know. He spoke to uh, many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So he's teaching in parables. And his disciples want to know, well, what is all this about? What does this mean? Verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. Now, when we start to deal with mysteries, okay, usually what we fixate on in terms of mystery is what? Church. That's right. Because the mystery, singular, is the church. That is mystery doctrine. That is the unrevealed truth related to the bride of Christ, related to the church. Prior to the church, there was no revelation that a body was going to be formed of both Jew and Gentile as one body in Christ that was going to be the bride of Christ. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. That's the mystery of the church. And related to that is the mystery of the rapture. Related to that is the mystery of the, uh, the position in Christ. All the What Paul develops, primarily Paul, what the New Testament epistles develop as mystery, as musterion, is related to church. But now here we have Mysteries. And he says, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Now, it is mysteries, plural. And there are aspects of this that do pertain to the church. All right. But there are aspects of this that don't pertain until the millennial kingdom. See, and so as such, mystery, to be fair, to be lexical, All right, in terms of vocabulary, mystery simply relates to what God has chosen to keep hidden until in his wisdom he chooses to unfold it. That's mystery. Okay? And the church is a huge example of that. But there are still things, millennially speaking, that the Father has kept enclosed that have not yet been unfolded. Okay? Okay? They're not church-related, they're they're millennium-related, but we can call them mystery because they're still enclosed. They're still hidden until such time as they are unfolded. All right? So the unfolding of the mystery of millennial kingdom information is uh, stuff that we'll have to look at coming up. Now notice, here's the explanation. Um and part of this also is going to make for an interesting study when we get to whoever has to him more shall be given he will have an abundance but whoever does not have even what he does have shall be taken away from him and some of this pertains to their millennial blessings that they're going to receive for being faithful with their talents and not burying their talent in the sand see and some of the grace blessings that come there now the explanation that comes, obviously, the, uh, the word of the kingdom in verse 19. The word of the kingdom and does not understand it. It says, verse 19, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Notice the angelic conflict in this passage. <laughs> when the evil one comes to snatch away words that have been sown, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. What word is this? Well, it's the word of the kingdom. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Say a little bit of heat, a little bit of conflict, a little bit of angelic conflict. And this person here just throws it in and says, no, I'm not doing that. It's not worth it. And then the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. Same thing happens today when you get believers that are so caught up in the world. Making money, building houses, pursuing career, pursuing this, pursuing that. I don't have any time for Bible going to church. The word of God, are you kidding? Too much fun to be had. But finally, the one in whom seed was sown in the good soil. And what does that mean? That means he has taken the time to clear away the rocks, to clear away the thorns, to clear away the brambles. He has tended his garden. This is now good depth of soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. All right. So there's one of the most well-known parables. And we'll have it because the uh, kingdom of heaven parables is a part of the Galilean ministry And it comes up in episode number 27. So we'll deal with that in much greater length. All right. Now, word of the kingdom. Jesus Christ is anticipating that this kingdom can come. That this kingdom is at hand. That Israel may not reject their king. Israel may accept their king. Israel may be this good soil. See, don't confuse what we know now with hindsight with what they didn't know right there looking at the, looking at the, the events unfold around them. Because head of, sil- uh, head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron. That's where they are. They're seeing Daniel laid all out there and they're saying, all right, here we are. This kingdom is ready to grow. All right? Ah, oh, man. Promise questions. Let me stop for questions. Ethel. We need to do more work on both kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. right, We need to do more work on kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Now, kingdom is dominion. It is sovereignty. When Jesus said, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, we're relating to all this kingdom of god is the father's kingdom notice Jesus didn't say his own kingdom he said thy kingdom our father which art in heaven thy kingdom is the father's kingdom that he's oriented to there okay and so this is the kingdom of god the father and there are applications both on earth where it's usually rejected and hated and not liked and in heaven where it is always adhered to on earth as it is in heaven okay But then we have this kingdom of heaven. All right. Kingdom of heaven. And this is just a preview for what we're going to deal with. But this is where Jesus Christ takes heaven and institutes it down here on the earth. So, literally speaking, millennium. Heaven on earth, so to speak. Earth's restored back to perfect environmental conditions. Uh, Jesus Christ has come down, but he doesn't empty himself. He doesn't lay aside his privileges. He doesn't come down in kenosis. He comes down in glory. All right. And so we have literally the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, we can relate to this as the bride currently now in the church age. Because if the millennium is the kingdom of heaven on earth, uh, you and I are citizens of heaven. We can can describe the church age as the kingdom of heaven still in heaven. (laughs) All right. And that we're not bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. You and I, although we're still living on earth, we're functioning in heaven. We are citizens in heaven. Our worship is in heaven. We are in the heavenly places. We're laying up our treasure in heaven. We're making purchases in heaven. All right. Our worship is in heaven. We don't go to an earthly replica. We worship in the Holy of Holies in the third heaven. See, at the Father's throne of grace. We approach boldly the throne of grace to find grace and obtain mercy to help in time of need. So, that's why when we read the Kingdom of Heaven parables, we can draw an awful lot of application for church age. And it's good to do that. Because that's where we're living. Okay? And we need to apply doctrine as related to the church age but kingdom of heaven parables and ultimately kingdom of heaven messages are not directed to the church age they're directed to the the millennium they're they're directed to the kingdom of god on earth thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven when jesus christ brings the kingdom when that that rock made without hands comes down smashes the earthly gentile nations and then grows to fill the whole earth So there are nuances where we will distinguish between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. All right. And um, I'll just let it go at that. There's more detail to be added later. Was that helpful? Okay. Anything else? Shirley. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Some of them are thinking spiritually. Right. So when he says we can't achieve that we can't. And he's baptizing uh he's baptizing he Jews that believe that there is a time of Christ. Right. he's baptizing believing Jews, preparing them for the kingdom. The yes. So was he preaching about He was preaching to believers. And when unbelievers showed up, he said, what are you doing here? When the Pharisees showed up, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because his message was not for the brood of vipers. His message was for believers, those that were looking forward to the coming Christ. And the brood of vipers, when they showed up, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? His message was not to the unbeliever. His message was to believing Jews, looking forward to the coming Christ and preparing them Politically, preparing them to enter into this kingdom once the kingdom arrives, which case they had to repent. These believers had to quit taking bribes, they had to quit doing all these other things. See? And when the Pharisees showed up, when these unbelievers showed up, he says, This message isn't for you. Their message, what they needed was a the gospel. They needed to get saved in the first place. Yeah. Michael. Mm-hmm. But without the spiritual transformation, still faith, you're not going to be ushered into that faith. Absolutely. Because at the beginning, uh, at the, as, after Armageddon, at the end of the tribulation, every unbeliever is thrown into hell. I so looking for one without the other... <laughs> you're going to miss it. Yeah, you can't get in. When he separates the sheep from the goats, and he puts the sheep and the goats on the different sides, and uh, that's Gentiles, but he does the same thing with Jews in, in Ezekiel 20, and he separates Israel. And those that are not saved don't enter into the millennium. They might be racially Jewish, but they're going to hell. The only believers enter into that millennial kingdom. And that's uh, that's why, yes, there's a kingdom to proclaim, but you also have to place your faith in Christ. Because unbelievers will not enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Okay? What is that gonna, how does that form the expected message for the tribulation? Ah, that'll be next week. Yeah. Yeah, that, in fact, that's uh, subpoint E. The... Yeah, when Moses and Elijah are, are ministering, if it's if it's them, the message, he... yes, okay. yes. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this message, and Father, we ask that you would give us diligence to understand these principles, and Father, in a sense of urgency, because just like Israel had a. They lived under imminency in the imminent expectation of the kingdom. We also live under imminency in the, in the immediate expectation of the rapture. So, Father, day by day, moment by moment, we want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We want to redeem the time, Father, for the days are evil. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.